0: 1 Peter chapter 3. In a series we've entitled Standing in the Storm as we find Peter writing to Christians who are experiencing great suffering. Suffering and Christianity go hand in hand. In fact, it has often been said it's the hallmark characteristic for a Christian to suffer. And yet many view this moment of suffering as an obstacle to a quality of life, when in actuality it's an opportunity to be a light in the darkness. It is an opportunity to shine and to show that the God in whom we follow and serve is real. It's an opportunity to say that there is something greater in our life than our own selves, and that we live for him even in this moment of suffering, And if I can make an opening statement this morning, I would say this. If you and I as Christians can conduct ourselves in Christian maturity during our times of suffering, we can impact the world around us with a dynamic witness for Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. If we can conduct ourselves in Christian maturity during our times of suffering, we can impact the world around us with a dynamic witness for Jesus Christ. You know why I say that? It's not only because of the instruction of the word. It's not only because when I saw that my Lord and Savior hung there on the cross in the mutilated condition in which he hung there, And the Roman centurion looking up and stating in Matthew's gospel, this is the Son of God, determining that by the manner in which Christ endured the cross, leading this man to the understanding of the true identity of Jesus Christ. As the centurion said, truly, truly, this is the Son of God. But fast forward to 2,000 years later, And I'll say to you this morning that over the last five to seven years of our church's existence, I have seen such a dynamic witness from members of our own congregation. And it wasn't at moments when they were going through a zenith in their Christian life. It was at a moment that they were struggling the deepest. It was the moment that they were confronted with issues such as cancer and other things that I saw that they came to a point with the Lord that the Lord just shined through them as they allowed Him to do so. Even those who went home to be with the Lord died in such dignity and grace that all who witnessed and watched it occur over the months that it had elapsed stated at the end, there had to be something more to this individual than just their own personal lives. I saw a witness for Jesus Christ in the time of suffering like I've never seen before. And it's a testimony, not only how God shines through us, but in listening to them and talking with them through those moments, I also saw that they experienced God like in no other way and and no other time in their personal lives as God met them there and held their hands step-by-step through the suffering. So this morning, not only does our text give us the profile of the mature believer, and I think it is interesting that that profile is found not with the backdrop of prosperity, but with the backdrop of suffering, Showing and demonstrating for us the characteristics that I discovered the early church turned to to discover the maturity of the believer in Jesus Christ. It was this passage with a couple of others that the early church looked to and said, This is what sums up a mature believer in Jesus Christ. So not only will we see this profile this morning, but we'll also get to see how that mature Christian meets. Evil with good, and how that mature Christian who does good when he is confronted by evil and how he responds. So, let us begin in verse 8 this morning of chapter 3 as we continue our look at this letter, 1 Peter. Finally, he says, All of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We are in 64 AD. Peter is in Rome. And as Peter is drafting this letter to be sent to the outer regions of the uh, province of Asia Minor, there in the Roman Empire, writing to Christians, who would appear to be in somewhat of a state of isolation, part of the group of Jewish Christians who left Jerusalem and went on into Asia Minor and scattered abroad, many of them coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ in Acts 2, then going home, separated from Jerusalem, separated from what God was doing there, and now they find themselves in these Gentile regions of the world at the moment That Caesar, Nero, decrees an edict stating that Christians should be arrested and persecuted for their insurrection against his authority by their unwillingness to call Caesar the son of God. Their refusal to worship within the temples that have been constructed in five out of the cities that are mentioned here at the book, the uh, introduction of the book of 1 Peter. In those regions, a temple was constructed in each one of those areas to worship Caesar as the son of God. In fact, the coins themselves had an inscription on the back saying, Caesar Nero, the son of God. Talk about hubris. These Christians could not and would not bend their knee in such worship. They also were being accused of a fire that started in Rome. And uh, many believe today in history that Nero was the one who started that fire himself to cleanse a large area of the city to allow him to further expand his palace. When they started turning on him and the senators of the Senate started turning on Caesar, seeing that it was possible that he was the one that caused the fire, he needed a scapegoat. And the Christians were easily found to be that scapegoat. So a decree has gone through all of the regions of the Roman Empire, stating to the governors that Christians should be arrested and persecuted, that their material wealth could be seized from them, and in some cases, they could even be put to death. As a result, Peter now, who is in Rome at this time, is writing this letter and dispatches it to see if he can get ahead of the wave of persecution that is about to wash over these areas of the Roman Empire. To encourage them to stand at this moment of persecution in the grace of God. And as he stated, if you turn back with me to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, He stated before we got into this section that we are concluding this morning, he said as a preface, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In verse 12, here's the reason why. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It is that that he spells out for us in the section that we are concluding today, what that honorable conduct looks like. And in so doing, he gives us The profile, I believe, of a mature Christian. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter was trying to prepare these people in advance that in the awesome wake of this wave of persecution that is coming through, let us take this as an opportunity to be a light unto the darkness. Let us be like Stephen at that moment of his death in the book of Acts, cried out for forgiveness for those who were stoning him. And one of those in the hearing of Stephen was none other than Saul, who we later know to be Paul the Apostle. And confronted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul was asked by the Lord, Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you kicking against your own conscience? For there was something working in Paul's life. There was something happening in his life that indicated in his heart that Jesus could possibly be exactly who he said he was. Was it the fact that he witnessed Stephen at that moment forgiving his persecutors, glorifying God, and even reaching out to the Lord as the Lord stood in waiting of Stephen's arrival? Peter says, now you, And in this section that we have been reading, he says, now you who are free in your interaction with the governing authorities, you who are servants in your interaction with those authorities above you, those who you're in servitude to, wives to your husbands, husbands to your wives. And now he comes to this grand finale. He comes to the climax. And now he says, finally, all of you. And he lists for us the characteristics which begins our profile of a mature believer in Jesus Christ. He begins with, first and foremost, have unity of mind. It means to be in harmony with those within the body of Christ concerning your thinking. Some have rendered this as a heartbeat. But it isn't a heartbeat in unison. It's a heartbeat that is synchronized in rhythm. He is not seeking uniformity among the believers. He's, th- he's seeking unity amongst them, not moving in unison with one another, but moving in harmony and in complementary fashion with one another like a choir who each is responsible for their part, their note, and their range and so forth, coming together as one, singing the glorious song that is before them. As one wrote, he says that every cell of our body is different in some way, but yet each and every cell of our body carries with it a DNA code written in it, which is the master plan for the entire body itself. Every cell in your body has the same mind. It has the same master plan within it. So how do we gain this unity of mind? Three ways. We gain it first and foremost by gaining the mind of Christ and allowing His thoughts to become our thoughts and then manifesting His desires through our lives. And we do this first and foremost by reading His Word, number one. By reading His Word each and every day from Genesis to Revelation, we discover the heart and mind of God, specifically in the person Christ Jesus. Secondly, through prayer, taking time each and every day for that intimate time of prayer between you and the Lord with the idea of not my will, Lord, be done, but your will be done through me. Prayer is the vehicle in which we ascertain and obtain the desire of God that he has for us to be played through us as a vessel for his glory. And all of this is done by our third resolve, and that is through the Spirit of God. God gives us His Word. God gives us the privilege of prayer. God gives us His Spirit that we may physically be able to carry out that in which He has for us. This is how the unity of mind is obtained. Paul said it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of God your mind. So the first aspect of a mature Christian is having unity of mind with Christ in the body of Christ. Secondly, sympathy. This word sympathy is broader than just the word sympathy in our English language, but it doesn't go as far enough to warrant the English word empathy. Sympathy is being able to come alongside of one and sympathize with their predicament. Empathy is coming alongside of one knowing exactly what they're going through because you yourself have gone through it. However, the word sympathy here that Peter is using is far-reaching. It's saying, I know that you haven't gone through it, but I'm asking you to feel it. I'm asking you to feel it with someone who is going through it. He's asking us to put ourselves in their shoes so our sympathy will be sincere and it will be authentic and it will allow for the unity of the body of Christ to be vastly superior in its strength. As one wrote, he says, Peter has in mind, as we naturally Uh, affect each other emotionally, rejoicing when others rejoice, weeping when others weep. We will have mutual interest in each other by carrying this type of sympathy, which leads us to our third one, brotherly love. This is the Greek word phileo, which we get the word Philadelphia from. It is a brotherly love. It means true companionship with one another. This companionship warrants loyalty and the love and the strength of a bond of a family. This is the love that we are called to admonish each other within. That therefore creates the bedrock to allow us then to progress from this brotherly love to the agape love that Jesus used in John 13, 35. By this all people know that you are my disciples when you love one another as I have loved you. It starts with this family type of love and, and then furthers to the agape love, this unconditional love that is rendered through the Spirit of God towards one another in Christ. And fourthly, we come to a tender heart. It means to be kind hearted and to have heartfelt compassion for one another. To be quick to forgive one who has wronged you. To reach out to those that are hurting would be an amp display of this tenderheartedness towards one another. It is the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 4:32. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the tender-heartedness that he desires us as Christians, mature believers, to, ex- to extend to one another. But not only to we have unity of mind, but the humility of mind. Peter states it this way very clearly because he wants to get to the root of the issue. Peter wanted to de- dive deeper into the human being, skipping the facade of humility that many may wear for a period of time. Uh, An air of modesty, if it were, if you were. And it was meant to signal and to confirm that there's true humility that is realized only when one is truly confronted by the realities of Jesus Christ. That's the humility that he is looking for here. Not the facade, not a false modesty, He's looking for a real, genuine inter-humility that is from our mind because we have been confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and how he was able to do all that he has done for us. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. The humility of mind is a humility that is meant to curb the insatiable appetite of one's personal ego. And the only way to do that is to gain this humility through a proper understanding of Christ. It was the mind in which he carried that led him out of heaven to do and to subject himself to the will of God here on this earth that Paul writes about in Philippians 2, 1-11. I felt it necessary for us to read this because, again, our ultimate example in all things is Jesus Christ. And so let us see how he humbled himself, and then let us ask ourselves, is there any room for pride within me when it comes to my relationship with the body of Christ and with one another? Or should I not carry the same mind that he carried into this world with him? Let's read these words together as Paul writes. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, notice how close a parallel some of these things are. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That sounds familiar. Having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God, the father. This humility obtained by Christ as he emptied himself and became obedient to the point of the cross. It is only when we discover the humility of Christ and we compare ourselves to it and we, are, we allow that humility to shine and to examine our own hearts. Therefore, then, we will understand what humility is and that humility of mine is the humility that is needed to again curb the insatiable appetite of my own ego and pride. And in verse 9, he sums this up as he now broadens not only the interaction of one who is mature amongst the body of Christ, but our interaction within the body of Christ and to those outside the body of Christ. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here Peter, as he broadens the application of this response, is again pointing back to the person of Jesus Christ. If you go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, let us look in verses 21 through 23, we'll discover that Christ, our ultimate example, has displayed this for us, not repaying evil for evil or not reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Blessing. Look what he says in verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you have been called, he says, Peter writing to us, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's no greater example of this than that moment that Christ was on the cross. And after everything that had happened to him going through the lashings of the the cat and nine tails 39 times being paraded through the streets, being put up as a public spectacle and subjecting himself to his own creation in their verdict towards his innocence or guilt. And at the end of it all, as he hung there on the cross in the brutal fashion in which he found himself at that moment, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do how is that possible so then you and i as followers of christ should we respond in any other way than the same manner that our lord responded to the persecuting persecution and suffering that he experienced here on this earth and the answer is no we should respond in like manner just as Stephen did when he forgave those who were stoning him. Undoubtedly, Stephen saw this as an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I don't know what goes through a person's mind at the moment before they die under the hand of such suffering and persecution. As I was watching the news over the course of this year and I saw my brothers and sisters in Syria and other areas of the Middle East subjected to the repulsive... Repulsive persecution of ISIS. I could not put myself in their shoes. I I, I was praying earnestly for them. I I, I wanted to see God intercede gr- greatly on their behalf. And many of them suffered and died, including small children, for the glory of Christ. But what was going through Peter's mind? I'm sorry, Stephen's mind at that moment, that he was about to die. Well, his words tell us exactly what he was thinking. This is an opportunity. This is my last breath. I'm going home to be with the Lord. This is my last opportunity to show that my God is real and the best way that I can do that is by the same manner in which Jesus responded to his his persecutions, so shall I respond to mine. What a dynamic thing. And that's exactly what Peter is Explaining to us here. Concerning this blessing, he then comes and he quotes Psalm 34 for us. Psalm 34 was a psalm that was required to be memorized by every Jewish child in that culture in a school that they attended called the School of the Book. It was a kind of a, a, a little creed unto themselves, if it were. And they used it because it was describing a person who wished to live a life that he can love and that he finds worthwhile. And to do this, a person must guard his speech, turn from evil, and do what is good by zealously seeking peace. The Lord delights in such a person, but the Lord will judge the wicked. The next two characteristics of a mature believer are found in this psalm. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Number one, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The controlling of one's tongue. Again, we describe Stephen for you. Knowing that our tongues can get away from us in moments like suffering, pain, anger, sadness, it is our tongue that we need to tame first and foremost if we are properly going to represent Christ in the moments of suffering. The tongue is a very difficult thing to control. James made that abundantly clear to us but the mature believer tames his or her own tongue by avoiding gossip and slander and crude language and deception and exaggerations and all kinds of wickedness and folly. It is easy to say something when you're emotional, isn't it? That later you may end up regretting completely. It's easy to speak off the cuff, to react within that emotional geyser that is welling up within you. But the psalmist writes, concern our mouth. He said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. Again, understanding where the heart of the individual is, when Stephen gave those words, his heart was in the place that he desired to be a witness for God at that moment. And instead of cursing his persecutors, he blessed them by asking the Lord to forgive them. In verse 11, though, we also see this next characteristic of a mature Christian. Let him turn away from evil and do good. A life of purity, but specific type of life of purity. The grammatical construction there in the Greek would indicate, now I say Greek even though the psalm was written in Hebrews, uh, Hebrew, the psalm here is quoted in the Greek because Peter would undoubtedly read the Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek, the construction here is to do good. That is at the moment that evil is presented in front of you. At the moment that you have a choice to respond evil, uh, evil for evil or good towards evil, it is at this moment that the Lord would have you prepare yourself for. This is the good in which it is referred to here. Let him turn away from evil at that moment that you are confronted by evil and respond in good. That's exactly what Peter is writing here. And also in verse 11, our next characteristic of a mature Christian is found in a peaceful disposition. He says, let him seek peace and pursue it. In this case, the idea is that when conflict arises, in our response of good, we should also be seeking a peaceful resolution. Resolution. We should not be looking to escalate the animosity, the tension, but we should be looking for a peaceful resolution towards it. Again, I'd like to direct your attention to a writing of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, that I believe articulates the ideas behind this peaceful resolution And again, when we read these verses together, let us notice the parallels between them and our text this morning to show that Peter and Paul were on the same page when it came to the identity of of understanding maturity in the believer's life, but also our response to one another and to the world was identical. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, "'Let love be genuine.'" Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showering of honor and do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then verse 14. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. But for so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his heads. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Behind Peter's list of Christian virtues that profile for us a mature Christian stands, stands behind an, an important assumption. That assumption is this, that belie- believers can grow in spiritual maturity to a point where they walk consistently in the light of God's word that suffering is not a hindrance to our growth in Christ, but can almost be a catalyst to help us grow in Christ. As Peter then closes with the psalm, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So when evil is met by good, now we will find when good is met by evil in verse 13 there is a summary statement in which he makes now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good question mark what does this mean he's asking a question here obviously it's a rhetorical question to his readers and the rhetorical answer is no one generally living in the kind of conduct that he has just articulated for us within these characteristics and qualities of a mature believer, you will live peaceably for the most part in this world. That's what he is getting to. However though, there will be those times where even your good conduct is met with evil by the world. Peter knew that living in such conduct as this would diffuse and disarm the persecutors against those who are living for Christ. However, though, he also knew that at times the world would still bear against the good of the body of Christ in the form of evil. So in verse 14 he then proceeds to answer that question when evil does arrive, or I should say arise against good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. Understanding the Jewish mindset, because I firmly believe that Peter is written to individuals who were Jews first and then became Christians there in the first decades of the early church. The Jewish people were conditioned to consider God on a blessings or curses basis. If they were being cursed they felt that they were out of favor with God. If they were being blessed they felt that they were in favor with God. And undoubtedly that is from the Mosaic Covenant The new covenant had just been established. They were still getting used to this whole idea of this new covenant through Christ. So still their thinking would have been along the lines of I'm suffering persecution, I'm going through difficulties, I must be out of favor with God. This must be one of the curses of the book of Deuteronomy. In the same token, when Jesus and the disciples came to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler rejected the words of God because he could not sell all that he had and give it to the poor, the disciples asked a question alluding to the same mindset. Well, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? See, in their mind, they thought that his riches were an indication that he was being blessed by God under the covenant understanding of the book of Deuteronomy. And the 400 year period of silence up until the first words of Matthew contributed to that disparity and that distortion of understanding. So he's writing to them. He says, Now this would have been a shock to them, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Wait, what? Really? Sounds pretty good to me. Peter is saying that it is a blessing as Jesus wrote, I should say, stated in Matthew five ten, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Undoubtedly, Peter had this in mind. James also wrote to the same people, the people of the dispersia. He says, count it all joy, my brother, when you are met with various trials of various kinds, excuse me, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and lest steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. James tells us clearly that it's suffering that brings about growth within our life. It is a blessing then to experience suffering, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He then goes on and he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The word fear there could be panic. It is phobia in the Greek, which we get the word phobia from. And this word fear would have caused them to avoid the suffering at all costs. If you have a phobia, and I hope you don't, I don't know what your phobia may be. Mine are small dogs in handbags. (laughs) That's my, that's freaky to me. I'm sorry. That's just wrong. A dog should be a dog should be a dog, Right? God made dogs, and then he imprinted his name upon them that you can read in use of a mirror. Dog backwards is what? I rest my case. I'm not even going to get to the whole theology on how God feels about cats. We'll save that for another time. But a phobia would cause these people to run. This fear, this phobia, it's something that you avoid. People who have phobias of flying, take a bus. People have phobias of heights, don't go to the top of the Sears Tower. It will never be the Willis Tower. Top of the Sears Tower. And stand out on that little platform where you look down and you're just waiting for that thing to fall, and, and it's so cool. And uh, then the Lord spoke to me, he says, Thou shall not test the Lord thy God, I came back off. <laughs> the word trouble here means to stir up. It's unsettling, it's intimidating. He says, do not fear and run from these things. Do not be troubled, stirred up, unsettled, intimidated by them. It's the same word that the Lord used when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in man. Here it is. If you want to conquer fear in your life, here's the answer. If you want to conquer fear in your life, here's the answer. It is faith in God. It is faith in the Lord. As Peter moves on, he says, do not be fearsome of them, fearful of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord as holy. He is stating in verse 15 that as a mature believer... We need to honor the Lord in our hearts by placing him in the only proper position in which Christ should occupy within the life of the believer, and that is in the place, as Paul wrote to us in Colossians, of preeminence. When we became Christians, we surrendered our lives to God. It is not, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. He's not only my Savior, He is my Lord, and He has full authority over me. It is this that Peter is trying to bring their attention to by asking them to place the Lord as holy, place Him in the center of your life as preeminence. The Christian faith is not God revolving around us Interacting on our behalf when we call and beckon to him. The Christian faith is God at the center and us revolving around him and our banner is not my will, Lord, but your will be done. That's Christianity, biblical Christianity. And then he moves on. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here at this point now is the opportunity capitalized upon. When individuals see you suffering for righteousness sake and they know that you are innocent and they know that there is nothing wrong that you have done and their hearts are pricked by that and as the roman guards came to paul and as the roman centurion stood before jesus at that moment acknowledging who he truly was and for a roman centurion to do that he was in fact denying his own caesar it's just fascinating if you look at the historical repercussions of that but he is saying here be ready to give a defense interesting word defense why defense Why would I have to give a defense for my hope in such a time as this? And why should I do it with gentleness and with respect? It would be easy to lash out in righteousness, wouldn't it? It would be easy to say, you are persecuting a righteous person of God, and therefore you shall suffer the judgment that is to come. And yet, he says here, the defense means that what is happening and what they are seeing and witnessing in your life doesn't make sense. It isn't logical. It, it, it uh, It isn't something that normally would occur under such circumstances, and now you have to defend it. Why are you acting in such a way? This is above and beyond what a normal human person would do. You have to give me the apologia, the defense where we get the word apologist from. For what is going on, because it doesn't make sense and it isn't normal, and this isn't the way people would react in this scenario on most occasions. And when you do, give that defense, do it with gentleness and do it with respect. I've seen this, I've seen individuals struggling with cancer. Who have the peace of the Lord within their heart that I frankly can't explain. And I've seen an individual confronted by a medical worker who challenged him at that moment and said, How can you still have your, your faith in God at this moment, at this time, when He has allowed you to have terminal cancer? It was provoking. There was antagonism in the medical worker's voice as they. I was sitting there. I heard it. And I didn't want, I wasn't going to say anything. I wanted the patient to say it. And he looked at her and said, My Lord saved me when I was a wretch, my Lord cleansed me when I was filthy and defiled. My Lord gave me a life of eternity with him that I did not deserve. My Lord blessed me for 60-some years here on this earth. Who am I to deny him or to curse him at this moment? For the moment I close my eyes here, I open them, and I am in paradise with my Lord for all eternity. I'll never forget her face. She couldn't comprehend it. You could just tell she was trying to figure it out, work it out, but she couldn't do it. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget him as Jim went through those last days of life. So this is why we give a defense, because this isn't rational. And we give this defense, the last characteristic of a mature Christian is found here. A mature Christian will acknowledge the lordship of Christ, will be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in them. And lastly, in verse 16, a good conscience is the last attribute listed here for us of a mature believer in Jesus Christ. I am fascinated by the use of the word conscience in the New Testament is something that I encourage you, if we don't have time today, to get into it, but to explore and to look at it yourself. It was so important to Paul, to Peter, to John, that a good conscience be held by a Christian, meaning a clean conscience, knowing that they are right before God, that they haven't done anything that needs confession, they haven't done anything that needs reconciliation, that they are right on with God. That good conscience, that clean conscience before God was a source of peace and security at a time where things were chaotic and insecure. And that individual dying with a good conscience before the Lord, that individual who is being persecuted with a good conscience before the Lord has that opportunity to be one who has displayed a consistent integrity and a quiet defense of the Christian life and bring his persecutors or her persecutors to silence. For Peter then closes in verse 17 of our text this morning, for it is far better to suffer for doing good that if it should be God's will than for doing evil. As Peter wrote from the very beginning, the trials that we experience are not random. The suffering that we incur are not abstract. They're in the perfect will of God for our betterment and for His glory. For our betterment in the sense that it brings us into the image of Jesus Christ by conforming us to that image through the sufferings of our surroundings. But by the glory of God, as we take that opportunity and be a witness in circumstances that many would find horrific and appalling and unjustifiable, we then can turn and say, our God is a real God and he is the one true God and he loves you and sent Christ to save you. During times of suffering, not only will Christ display himself through us to the world around us, but we will see and experience him like no other time. I'd like to read these words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. These were words that he wrote just days before his death. It's words that he wanted his family and his congregation to hear to help and to encourage them For when they go through difficult times, times of suffering, listen to these words, if I may, I bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he wrote, he has then been the most kind If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and suffering that I have experienced. I am sure that in these things, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me through Christ."